here right now. Guys, we are ending this morning our sermon series called When Necessary. And I want you to consider, I'm going to tell three stories or scenarios that could happen anywhere in this country or for that matter, anywhere all over this world. And I want you to, as I'm telling these stories, see if you can determine the common theme that runs through all of them. The first story is a story of a married couple who smiles at one another knowingly as they enjoy their Christmas dinner with the extended family. And the conversations as they do anytime you're together with extended family seem very awkward and forced and slow. But they do their best to act normal and to make small talk. And hours later when the family has gathered around the tree and their parents open their gift together, which contains diapers, they are finally able to share their surprise. You're going to be grandparents. We're expecting. Or how about this one? The high school freshman who nervously makes his way down the hallway toward the athletic offices. And after two weeks of grueling tryouts, today is the day that they're going to post the final team roster. As he turns the corner, the young man sees the list at a distance, and it's taped to the cold block walls with just a couple pieces of athletic tape. And at first, it's just a blur of ink, but as he gets closer, it all comes into focus, and he sees his name. And as he rides the bus home, a, a big grin comes over his face. And as he arrives home, he bursts through the front door, and he throws his backpack through the air that lands on the couch, and he yells, I made the team. Or a mom and a dad who have been nervously and half-heartedly eating bags of food from the vending machine and drinking less than the best coffee for the past two hours. You see, their daughter had fallen out of a tree while playing at a friend's house, and she suffered serious injuries. And she was conscious but very groggy the last time they saw her before she entered surgery. And they prayed, and they cried, and they waited for what seemed like an eternity. And finally, the doctor walks through the door, and he speaks the words that they have been waiting to hear. Your daughter is going to be fine. What's the common theme in all three of those scenarios and situations? Anybody? Good news. Guys, we, we speak good news. That's what we've been talking about for the last four weeks now, about sharing the gospel, taking it everywhere that we go. We speak good news. I mean, it's human to do so. When something happens that brings us joy in life and may very well bring joy into the lives of those around us, we naturally want to share it, right? Isn't that how life goes? Something really good happens in our life. I, 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 don't, I don't hide this at all. I am the worst secret keeper you will ever find. If I have something and I know it's good, I just have to tell everybody. That's just how I am. So don't ever tell me a secret. That's, that's your, your warning. Don't ever tell me a secret if you want to keep it secret. Do what? Just keep it in the car. There you go. There's, guys, here's the thing about it, too, about sharing good news. There is absolutely no training needed. There are no qualifications necessary to be a good news teller. We all know how to do it. Every single one of us know how to do it. You just open your mouth, and naturally good news just pours out. I'm engaged. I got the promotion. I'm cancer-free. I mean, it seems easy enough, right? And yet, as we have seen over the past few weeks, we make it so 
hard when it comes to telling others about the good news of Jesus Christ. Guys, I don't care what other good news you have in life. If you think you might have the greatest news there ever was, the greatest piece of news that there ever was, I have news to tell you this morning. Nothing is better than the good news of Jesus Christ. You can't beat it. No way, no how. But guys, do you know what makes the good news good? It's often a response to bad news. Something before the good news has had to be bad for it to be good news. And guys, bad news would be a mild description of what is taking place in the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. You're welcome to turn there this morning if you want to. That's where I'm going to start off. But if you would like to actually go where we're going to be for the main part of our service this morning, we're going to be on Mark 6. So if you want to go to Mark 6 and put your finger there and then go over to 2 Kings chapter 6 is where I'm going to be. And guys, there's not really a shred of good news in 2 Kings 6, all bad news. The point where we pick up the story here in 2 Kings finds Israel and specifically the northern kingdom of Samaria with their backs against the wall. They're in a real tough place. And guys, listen to this. This is what we are told starting in verse 24 of 2 Kings 6. It says, Sometime later, however, King Ben-Hadad of Aram mustered his entire army and besieged Samaria. And listen, listen to this. As a result of that, and here's what happened, guys, back in, back in those days. To besiege a city meant that you blocked off every single road that you could going in and out of that city. And so the point of it was to basically starve the people inside to death. That's what they did. And it says, as a result of a, uh, the army of Aram besieging the city, there was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long, get this, that a donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver and a cup of dove's dung sold for five pieces of silver. Continuing on, it says, one day as the king of Israel was walking along the wall of the city, a woman called to him, please help me, my lord, the king. And he answered to this woman, if the Lord doesn't help you, what can I do? I have neither food from the threshing floor nor wine from the press to give you. But then the king asked, what is the matter? And listen to this, guys. If you think donkey heads and eating donkey heads and eating dove dung is bad, listen to what happens next in Samaria. She replied, this woman said to me, come on, let's eat your son today, and then we'll eat my son tomorrow. And so we cooked my son, we ate him, and then the next day I said to her, kill your son so we can eat him. But she has hidden her son. I mean, you think that you have experienced and had a bad day? You've experienced a tough time? Have you ever been faced with the prospect of eating donkey heads and dove dung? Eating your own children? But, but we all know this saying, don't we, guys? There is always someone who has it worse off than you. And in this story, in 2 Kings, the poor schmucks who have an even gloomier outlook on life than the Samaritans are four lepers. They're cast out of the city as, as many lepers were, spending much of their life away from the public. And if this, that isn't bad enough, in this particular situation, the food that they depended on came from the very people who, guess what, were starving inside of the city. There was nowhere for them to go. There was no hope for these four lepers. Listen to their despair in 2 Kings 7, verses 3 and 4. Is what it, here's what it says. There were four men with leprosy sitting at the entrance of the city gates. Why should we sit here waiting to die, they asked each other. 
I mean, we'll starve if we stay here, but with the famine in the city, we will starve if we go back there. So we might as well go out and surrender to the Aramean army. If they let us live, so much the better. But if they kill us, we would have died anyways. Guys, that's a pretty bad situation. Like, it doesn't really matter what we do. We're going to die there. We're going to die over there. So we might as well go ahead and take our chances and see if they have any food. We'll surrender to them. Then we might be taken care of over there. And here's the truth at this point in the story. Although we sitting here this morning are separated by centuries of history, the news isn't all that different. The conditions are much the same in the world that we live in today. The desperation of those around us is the same. It may not look like it on the outside because as humans, we're really good about putting up a front of what we are on the outside. But guys, inside, people are feeling trapped and they're starving from a deep hunger for purpose and something more that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And while this is certainly depressing, this story to this point, you're thinking to yourself, I came and I'm sitting here for this today. This is not very uplifting at all. There is hope. There's hope in this story here in 2 Kings. Continue with me. These guys, these lepers are essentially marching to their death one way or another, by sword or by starvation. And then the miraculous happens. Let's continue the story in verses 5 through 8. It says, so at twilight, these four lepers set out for the camp of the Arameans. But when they came to the edge of the camp, guess what? No one was even there. No one was there. For the Lord had caused the Aramean army to hear the clatter of speeding chariots and the galloping of horses and the sounds of a great army approaching. The king of Israel had hired the Hittites and Egyptians to attack us, they cried to one another. And so they panicked. And they ran into the night, abandoning their tents, their horses, their donkeys, everything else, as they fled for their lives. And when the lepers arrived at the edge of the camp, they went into one tent after another, eating and drinking wine, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and they hit it. I mean, these guys are fat catnip right now. They are the only four guys in this entire camp. They eat to their heart's content. They drink to their heart's content. They find clothing and they find silver and they hoard it all and they put it away and they hide it for another day. But in verse nine of the story, we get the pivotal moment that we talked about last week. The moment that everything clicks. Listen to these surprising words in verses 9 and verse 16 of 2 Kings 7. They've hid all this clothing and silver. They've, they've drunk all this wine. They've eaten all this food. And it says, finally, they said to each other, please zero in on this. This is not right. This is a day of what, guys? What's it say there? Good news. And we aren't even sharing it with anyone. If we wait until morning, some calamity will certainly fall upon us. Come on, let's go back and let's tell the people at the palace. And so these four guys do go back to the palace. They tell the gatekeeper, gatekeeper, there's nobody in this camp over here. We can go and plunder it. Everybody can be saved now. And you can imagine what the gatekeeper says, right? Okay, guys, really. But they go ahead and they tell the king anyways. And the king says, I feel like this is kind of a trap. I don't feel like this is really real, but he sends out some scouts, and sure enough, they go, and this camp is completely empty. And it says in verse 16, then the people of Samaria rushed out and plundered the Aramean camp. Salvation had come to the people of Samaria. But do you know what? Do you catch it in there? This never would have happened if what had not happened. 
if these four guys had not gone and said, we have good news. I mean, sure, they could have hid it. They could have had all that food, all that wine to themselves. They could have all that silver, all that clothing. All the spoils and plunders of war could have been just theirs. And what are the words that they used? This is not right. Guys, it would be my hope for all of us that we would understand the gift that we have in Jesus Christ and that we would not just hoard it and we would not just hide it, but we would say, you know what, this isn't right. What we have right here is the greatest thing that anybody could ever have. We have to go share this good news. And we read that story and we ask ourselves, what just happened in that story? How in the world does an entire army just flee into the night and leave everything behind? Here's what I think happened, guys, in this story. God just happened in that story. God's miraculous, marvelous power just happened. And I know what you might be saying at this point is you might be saying, you know, Ryan, come on. This is an Old Testament story. I mean, are we supposed to believe that it has anything to say to us today? Fair enough. And so I present to you Exhibit B as we fast forward into the New Testament and find ourselves smack dab in the middle of the Gospels and into Jesus' ministry. Into one of the most famous stories in the New Testament, a story that is found in all four Gospels. It's actually the only story in the Gospels that's found in all four Gospels. God's miraculous, breathtaking, and hope-filled power is once again on display. And in Mark chapter 6, in the feeding of the 5,000, this is what it says, starting at verse 30. It says, the apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour. I love that. I love that phrase. I could just see these guys, like, we're on, like they've got t-shirts and everything, like, disciples tour, you know, like, we're on it, baby. You got the t-shirts made out, the memorabilia. I just, that's just the way my mind works when I read the Bible. They returned from this ministry tour, and... They told him all that they had done and taught. And then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and let's rest a while. And he said this because there were so many people, so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was a disciple back in the day and there was no time to eat, I'm not really sure how long I could be a disciple. I'm like, Jesus, come on, let's make some time to go stop off at Arby's because I've got to get me some roast beef. They didn't have time to eat. That's how busy, that's how popular this Jesus guy is. And so, so they left the boat for a quiet place where they could be alone, but many people recognized them, and specifically Jesus, and they saw them leaving, and the people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. And Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. And late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. Jesus, we're out in the middle of nowhere. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. And Jesus says the most audacious thing that he could think of at this point. You feed them. With what is what they say? I mean, we have to work for months. In fact, eight months is what we'd have to work to earn enough money to, find, to feed all of these people here. And Jesus simply asks, how much bread do you have? Go and find out. And so they came back and they reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. Whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, God, that's, that's all well and good, but again, I mean, that's Jesus, right? This is Jesus that can do this stuff, what he's getting ready to do. I mean, how valid and how common are miracles today? 
I mean, aren't they isolated to the New Testament, especially Jesus' ministry, maybe the Old Testament? But I believe this unexplainable miracle in Mark 6 that Jesus does as he takes those five loaves and the two fish and he multiplies it to feed not just 5,000, but guys, the estimates are that there were anywhere from 15 to 20,000 people in this countryside. And I, I, mean, I, I think about that all the time and I think, how in the world does this happen? How in the world do you even wrap your mind around five loaves and two fish feeding 20,000 people? I believe that miracle has a lot to say to us about miracles and their ability to speak powerfully about the God who so richly provides for us in the most unexpected ways. And for the last week, four weeks, we have been taking a close look at the concept and the importance of evangelism in a follower's life. And by and large, for most of the time, I've made the case that many times evangelism is an investment of time and relationships, and it happens in the day-to-day interactions that we have. But other times, guys, and I'm here to tell you this morning, other times sharing the gospel happens in a spontaneous moment of opportunity, in a miraculous, God-designed, only-he-can-do-this way. Mark 6 is one of those situations but so that we don't think that this is just limited to Jesus' ministry because, you know, he's Jesus. Listen to the story of a miraculous, uh, this miraculous story in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3, we're told this beginning at verses 9 and 10. It says this. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God. Do you remember the story when Peter and John go into the temple and there's a lame man there, he's a beggar, and he says, just give me something. That's what he does every single day. Just give me some money. Just give me a handout. That's what I want. And he doesn't even have the nerve to even look at Peter and John. Because Peter comes up to him and he says, look at me. He says, I don't have anything for you money-wise, but I have the best thing that you'll ever know, Jesus Christ. He puts his hand on him and he heals him. And this guy who had been lame for years of his life stands up and does this, jumping up and down like a wild maniac of a guy. And continuing on, it says this. When they realized... When they saw this guy jumping up and down and praising, and they realized that he was the same lame beggar that had sat there for years, they had seen so often at the beautiful gate. Check this phrase out. And this is going to be an important phrase for this morning. They were absolutely astounded, taken back. Continuing on. So in verse 12, listen to this. This is... See, this would have been great if it would just been an awesome miracle to heal this guy. He was jumping up and down and people saw it and said, whoa, that is something that you don't see every day. But this is a very important verse. It says, Peter saw his opportunity and he addressed the crowd. You see, Peter could have just said, guys, I submit to you a miraculous event. Jesus did that and walked away. He doesn't. He seizes the moment, the miraculous moment, and he starts to share the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. Acts 4.4 tells us this. As a result of what happened in, in Peter seizing that opportunity, many people who heard their message believed it. And so the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were added to the church. As a result of Peter seizing this opportunity and telling about the good news of Jesus Christ, 2,000 more were added to the church, 5,000 total, in about that quick. Because they didn't hide it. They shared it. They shared the good news. And guys, here's the deal. If I'm going to be really honest this morning... Sometimes and actually many times, I don't understand the way that God works. 
I don't understand his miracles. I, I don't think there's one thing that I can look at in the Bible and be like, I totally can tell you how you did that one. Oh no, he's God. He's Jesus. That's why he does things the way he does. I don't know. I can't explain it. But here's the thing. I do understand that, that so many times in life there are things that I can't explain in any other way but to chalk it up to the miraculous power of God. I don't know about you. You may be a person who says, I don't really know if miracles still exist today. I'm here to tell you I've lived my life long enough to know that miracles still exist today. It may not be five loaves and two fish. It may not be something wacky and crazy like you see in the Bible. Miracles still exist today. And here's the thing, guys. We aren't meant, we're not expected to explain everything about God or how he works. Again, what does he say in scripture? My ways are higher than your ways. Thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Don't try to explain it. We don't have to completely understand, guys, to fully believe and obey. But here's one thing that I know for sure. And it shows up time and time again in scripture. When God shows up, there is no question he's there. When God shows up, there's no question that he's there. How, but, but, but how in the world, how do you know that Jesus is in the house? How do you know that Jesus is in the area? How do you know that Jesus is working a miracle in someone's life? If there's evidence of God's power and the Spirit's presence in their life, a supernatural, unexplainable, undeniable presence, you can be sure that a miracle is in your midst. And here is one of the most interesting things about Jesus, among many things. When Jesus is in the house, when Jesus is in the area, when he's working in a person's life, you can't keep people away. You just can't do it. I mean, he is that magnetic. When people get a hold that Jesus is doing something, when there's something that's not right, people want to lean in. They want to be a part of that. You want to know if Jesus, moves, if Jesus is moving? Just watch how people react. And this is absolutely fascinating to me. Look again at the beginning of the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus and his disciples are just trying to get away. They just want some time alone, time to themselves. And notice what happens in verses 32 and 33. So they left for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them, saw them leaving, and they ran from many towns and ran ahead to meet them where they would be. But this isn't the only place that we get a fanatical response and reaction to Jesus. Just a little bit before, actually a little bit after this, in Mark 6, 54 and 56, it says this. After Jesus has fed the 5,000, after he's walked on water, it says he climbs out of the boat and people recognize Jesus at once and they ran. Guys, nobody ran in Jesus' day. It just wasn't really dignified. It says they ran throughout the whole area carrying sick people on mats to wherever they heard that he was. Man, Jesus was a rock star and he had a lot of groupies. It says wherever he went, in villages and cities and countryside, they brought the sick out to the marketplaces and they begged him just simply to let the sick touch his, the fringe of his robe. And all who touched him were healed. And just a chapter earlier, guys, before this, Jesus heals a 12-year-old girl. And this is the reaction that he gets Mark 5, 41 and 42, he says, holding this little girl's hand, he said to her, little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around, and they were what? Overwhelmed and totally amazed. When Jesus is working, when Jesus is working a miracle and working in people's life, you cannot keep people 
away. Jesus always had a way of getting people's attention and attracting them to him. And one of the primary ways that he did that were through miracles. Jesus can use both methods that we've talked about over the last few weeks. He can use the simple and the ordinary conversations, relationships, day-to-day interactions, but you better believe that he can also use the surprising and the powerful that we find in the miracles of Jesus. But both of these things have the exact same goal, to make God known and to reveal his love to mankind. And that is nowhere more apparent than in the feeding of the 5,000. Notice Jesus' emotions for this crowd. He encounters them, and in verse 34, he says, he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. But, But do you catch the last part of the verse? He's not just some bleeding heart. He sees a divine opportunity, a divine moment, and he begins to, what does it say there? He began teaching them many things. He begins to teach them. He begins to shepherd this leaderless people that he comes into contact with. But what he says next blows the doors off the disciples. He notices this outrageously large crowd that stands before him, and he knows that the mall food court has been shut down for the day. And they suggest to Jesus, hey, Jesus, why don't you just send them away so they can get something to read? Hint, hint. This is the moment where the disciples think, if we can just get them away, if Jesus will just shoo all these people away, guess what? We can eat. Because I'm hungry. But Jesus sees something bigger at play. He sees an opportunity to teach and an opportunity to make the good news known in the most unexpected and the most miraculous way. And what does Jesus say to the disciples when they suggest that he just shoo people? What does he say to them? You. You feed them. I think this is so interesting because it speaks straight to the heart of what we struggle with so often when it comes to trusting in the power and the miracle working ability of Jesus. Guys, here's the fact of the matter. Almost every single time, not just almost every single time, we have more than we imagine. We have more at our disposal than we imagine. So often we approach Jesus in life and we fully expect him to just fix the problem or act in a miraculous way. We just go and we just rub the genie bottle and say, this is what I want today, Jesus. But guys, here's the deal. He has already equipped us. He has already given us everything that we need to meet the problem or the need head on. Jesus meets this crowd's need for physical nourishment. He meets the disciples' need to see Jesus for who he is with eyes of faith. And what in the world do the disciples give to Jesus? Do you see what they give him there? You feed them, and what do they say? With what? They give him an excuse. Like, Jesus, this is way too impossible. You couldn't possibly expect us to feed all of these people. Essentially, they tell Jesus, ain't happening, buddy. But guys, here's the deal. The impossible is only impossible because we don't trust Jesus to show up in a mighty way. And here's the honest truth. I want you to hear this this morning. God doesn't even show up until the situation is impossible. That's when God steps in. Like we think we're really smart. We have it really all together. And so Jesus says, or God says, fine, do this on your own strength. Do it in your own power. Do it on your own smarts until we get to a point where we can't do it anymore. And God says, all right, here we go. I specialize in the impossible. Guys, God isn't asking anyone who would come and follow after Jesus if they can or they can't. God doesn't come to us and be like, 
Now, Ryan, do you think you can do this or you can't do this? There is no can or can't. God doesn't ask that of us. He's just asking you to do what he's calling all of his followers to do, reach more and more people with the gospel of Christ and make disciples. You feed them. Oh, Jesus, we don't have enough. And then comes a turning point in this story. Jesus asks very simply, what? What do you have? If you don't have what you think you need to have, what do you have? And here's what I realized about that day with every impossibility staring the disciples in the face. Here's what I know to be true in every situation that needs a miracle in our lives. We always have the ingredients for a miracle at our disposal. They're there, always, all the time. I mean, when we truly recognize, if we would truly recognize what and who we have at our disposal, the possibilities and the opportunities are endless. Guys, but Jesus cannot multiply. He cannot make the miracle if we don't entrust him with it. So often we look at the problem or the problems in our life instead of looking to the power of the miracle maker. If we would only give God the one thing that he's asking for in our lives, devotion and love, he would do the most miraculous thing that we have ever seen and even more. And here's the thing, guys. The miracle may not immediately come. I don't want to be here this morning and be like, hey, guess what? Miracle is just right there. I mean, like, if you would just pray it and you would just think it, it's going to happen. I, I'm not saying that. The, immediate, the miracle is just you know, fall out of midair. Guys, but there is always a miracle in waiting. If we would only give God what we have. Because God uses the things and the people that don't seem to count to communicate that every single thing counts. And that couldn't be truer in this story. In fact, in John's account of this story, the feeding of the 5,000, in verse 9, he says this. He tells us this, an extra added piece of information. He said there was a young boy there that had the five barley loaves and the two fish. And one of the disciples said, I mean, what good is that going to do? What good is that going to do with this gigantic crowd that we have here? Translated, this is so impossible, Jesus there, I mean, there are 5,000 men with their families here. There are, there are maybe 20,000 people here, and you want to use this little boy's lunch. I mean, the story is called the feeding of the 5,000 men. In fact, look at the, the boy didn't even count. He didn't even count in that 5,000. He didn't even factor into the equation, yet he is the one who had the ingredients for this miracle. Isn't that fascinating? But I want you to think even further. Think about this. Who in the world packed this little boy's lunch? Any idea? Who usually packs the lunch? Mama. Mama packed this boy's lunch. And do you suppose that when she was packing that boy's lunch, when she was tossing in the canned sardines and when she was tossing in the croutons, because that's really what this was, guys. It wasn't like gigantic, like French bread loaves and huge salmon. No, it was like croutons and canned sardines. Do you think that when she was tossing those things into his little Spider-Man lunchbox, that she was doing anything earth-shattering or world-changing? I mean, I can assure you guys, she did not. But what she put in that little boy's lunchbox were the ingredients for one of the greatest miracles in all of Scripture. Everything. Every single thing that you do and say counts. 
You may think that what you do day in and day out doesn't matter. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom or you work in a factory, whether you're retired or you're running your own business, whether you feel like you're in a a dead-end, miserable job or you do something that you love, the words that you speak, the actions that you take, the decisions that you make have the makings of a miracle. With God in front, with the Spirit active in our lives, nothing is impossible. I want you to say that this morning. Nothing is impossible. I hope that you believe that this morning. Absolutely nothing is impossible. It may seem very impossible, but it is not when God is involved. And guys, do you know what quite bestly, the, possibly the best thing to come out of the feeding of 5,000 is? I mean, we'd look at it and be like, that's enough on its own. What more do you need outside of that? Guys, the best thing to come out of the feeding of the 5,000 were 15 to 20,000 people leaving and going back to their towns, and going back to their cities, and going back to their homes and telling others about what Jesus had done in the countryside that day. I mean, when we're truly changed, when we witness a miracle, when we witness a change in somebody's life who we never thought would change, we can't help but tell others. We want every single person to know. Again, miracles are all over the Gospels in Mark chapter 5, just before the feeding of 5,000 here, Jesus heals a demon-possessed man as he encounters him. And the man comes to Jesus, and he wants to get in the boat with Jesus, and he wants to go on this ministry tour with Jesus. And Jesus surprisingly says, no. I mean, come on, Jesus, isn't that a little crazy? Why wouldn't you let this guy come with you? No. And this is the reason why. Mark 5.20 says this, No, go home to your family and tell them everything that the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. And so the man started off, and he began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone, here's this word again, everyone was what? Amazed at what he had told them. Guys, sometimes it takes a miracle to get the attention to capture the hearts of people even the most hardened skeptics. Sometimes people just simply need a miracle. My question this morning for you is, would you be an instrument for a miracle to happen in someone else's life simply by offering what you have? In Acts 2, we are told about the power of miracles in the early church. I mean, that's why they call it Acts, right? Because it is the book of the apostles' Acts. The signs and the wonders, the miracles they did do. In verse 43 of Acts 2, it tells us this. A deep sense of awe came over all of them. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And then verse 47 tells us this. And each day, because of what they did, because of their sharing of the good news through these miraculous signs and wonders, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. And the early church was on fire. They had it going on. And miracles were often the inspiration for the evangelism that they did. Miracles give God a chance to show up and to speak for himself in a way that no one or nothing else can. I want to read one more piece of scripture this morning. It also comes from the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 13, we're told this. Peter and John are standing before the council, the Sanhedrin, and starting at verse 13, it says this, the members of the council were, there's that word again, right? Uh, Amazed. They were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were just ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. I would 
if, if you get nothing else out of the series, I would hope that would just stick with you. The people would be able to look at our lives and say, you know what, that person right there, they have been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. And then continuing on, it says, since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there in front of them, the man who they had healed at the beautiful gate going into the temple, there was nothing that the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and they conferred among themselves. And they said, what, what do we do with these men? They have asked each other, or they asked each other, we cannot deny that they have performed a miraculous sign and everyone in Jerusalem knows about it. And then come verses 18 and 20. And so they decide amongst themselves and they called the apostles back in and they commanded them, never speak or teach in the name of Jesus again. And Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? Oh my God, that's gutsy, guys, by the way. That's a gutsy, gutsy line. And he says this, we cannot stop telling about everything that we have seen and that we have heard. Guys, here's what I know to be true. You may not have had five loaves and two fishes in your life, but every single one of us in here have had a miracle in our lives. My bet would be that we've not just had a miracle, we've had many miracles in our lives, things that we would call miracles. If you have not, then you're not looking hard enough. Guys, let's not just be people who know about the miracles of God. Let's be people who know the maker of miracles. And as we experience those miracles and those mighty movements of God in our life, we would do nothing else. We could do nothing else but go and tell. To, as he says here again in Acts chapter 4, we cannot stop telling about everything that we have seen and heard. Let's pray. Lord, that is our prayer and that is the hope this morning. That in every part of our lives, we don't even have to look very hard. There are miracles in waiting. There are miracles happening almost every single day, it seems like. And so I pray that you would open our eyes to those miracles, Lord. And that as you open our eyes to miracles, we would do nothing else but be able to go and tell of the wonderful things that you have done in our lives and lives of people around us. And as we share that gospel, Lord, lives are changed. Lives are changed in the most miraculous way that we can imagine, beyond anything that we understand. That is our prayer this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, my hope this morning is that that would not just be a message that you would hear, be a message that you would take to heart. And this morning, if you would like to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that you do that. Dana is up here, and he would love to talk with you, speak with you about that, pray with you about whatever it is that's on your heart this morning, that if you would give your life to Christ, that would be the best news that you could ever have. And today could be the day that you accept Christ, and that you could take that good news to everyone around you. They, do you guys, do you know who the best people are to spread the good news? New Christians, because they're on fire like the early church. This morning, could that be you as we stand and as we sing this final song?